Good morning, Woodland Hills. And good morning or afternoon or evening or middle of the night, Podrishners, whenever you happen to be tuning in. And I also want to say happy Father's Day, happy Abba's Day. How's that? Amen. Amen. Uh, I have got, oh, and welcome back, Nielsen's. Is, is there anyone else from out of town here that we should know about? We had some people from Swiss. And where are you guys from? Oklahoma. God bless you guys. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. All right. Oklahoma, Pennsylvania. Yes. Packers. Packers. <laughs> we need some bodyguards over here to help these folks. Try these folks. No, we love, we love uh, Packers fans. Even Packers fans, our love is that great. We're so, we're, so, we're, we're so Christian. Anybody else? Just shout it out if I can't see you. Colorado. Colorado. Fantastic. Good to have you here. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Fantastic. St. Paul. St. Paul. <laughs> Laurel Avenue. I came all the way from Laurel Avenue. Someone else back here? New York. New York. My goodness. Fantastic. Okay. Final call. North Carolina. We love you guys. Welcome. No, no other country folks. Well, we, we had some folks from uh, uh, Sweden here last night. So oh, it's, just, it's just great to get uh, folks passing through. Well, welcome to all of you. Glad uh, uh, that you're here. I have uh, a little announcement before I get into my message. Um, uh, it, this is more for the pod, podrishioners than it is for you guys because we've already given this announcement here. Though I might clarify a few things for the people who have gotten the announcement here. Uh, so it's this. Um, starting this fall, we're, we're kicking off a school here, a discipleship school. Uh, kind of along the lines of a YWAM kind of base. Uh, it'll be a live-in situation. People will be full-time in the school. Uh, and it, there'll be a teaching thing going on in the mornings. Uh, I'll do some. Paul Eddie will do some. And uh, we got a bunch of teachers coming in. And then uh, there'll be uh, uh, spiritual disciplines that people will be involved in uh, every day. And missional stuff that people will be involved in. And we're trying to get a nine-month experience for people to be immersed in as close to the New Testament church as we can think of. And so it's, it's, it'll be a communal thing. And see, I really am convinced, having taught at universities for a long time, uh, that uh, at least two-thirds, maybe three-quarters of the freshmen that are at the university shouldn't be there. They're not ready for it yet. Uh, It's a very expensive way to uh, help kids try to find themselves. Well, this is a lot cheaper way, and it's a lot better way. Uh, And I I really think that uh, the Mormons have the right idea when you take a year or two off right out of high school and dedicate it to the Lord. And see, that changes the rest of your life. Uh, People who leave, who who get out of this uh, ministry after having spent nine months in this community will be different. And it will kingdomize you. And it will just, so whatever your walk of life is, this is a a good thing to do. I would uh, ask you to consider uh, being part of this. And anyone can come. We're gearing it. We're expecting that there'll be many, many younger folks who will be here, but, but anybody who can take nine months out uh, can, can be a part of this. Uh, then there's another program. This is my second announcement. Uh, a completely different kind of uh, educational program. This is an online master's course for people who want an accredited master's degree in theology. Uh, it, it's, it's geared primarily towards people who are going into ministry and doing all that kind of stuff, so it's got a real practical edge to it, but it's also got some theology. Um, this is Fresno Pacific uh, Seminary, and it's an online program that's designed strictly for people who are catching this vision of the kingdom all around the globe. People are getting, waking up to this Jesus-looking God, uh, raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. So they decided to create a program to minister to that crowd. It's brilliant. 
And uh, I teach in this, uh, this uh, course. Uh, Brexy Cavi is also has a role in it. Brian Zane also has a role in this. And um, it, it's, I've been doing that for the third year, and it's a real cool program. So I uh, put up the addresses. There we go. Uh, so the, the, if you're looking for a master's degree, and most of the people who are taking this are working full-time while they're taking this. It's, it's an online thing. Twice a year you'll meet uh, for, for these... Um, I forget what they call them, resident programs, uh, for one week. But otherwise, it's all online. So the Fresno Pacific is fpu.edu slash mic. And for the School of Missional Apprenticeship, that's the school that we're running here at Woodland Hills, uh, it's whchurch.org slash Aspen. All right? So if you're interested in that or know people that are interested in that, spread the word and get on there and check it out. It's going to be a cool program. All right. That's good preaching. You ready for a word? Okay, this is, um, we're in a series uh, called Loose Ends because we're dealing with difficult passages, weird passages, that we tend to just skip over and let them dangle. They're, they're loose ends. Well, we want to tie up these loose ends. Uh, we say, what's up with these weird passages? Uh, we tend to avoid these, this kind of stuff. These are the passages that are hardly ever, if ever, preached on. Um, but, you know, in the early church, they didn't avoid passages like, like, like the ones we're dealing with in, this summer. In fact, if you read Augustine and Tertullian and, and, and Origen and those early church fathers, they love this stuff, the, the tough stuff. It's like their conviction was God intentionally made some aspects of scriptures challenging and hard to understand so that we'll have to grow. We have to dig. We have to, it stretches us and, and uh, it matures us. So I'm glad that we're doing this series. And we will be preaching on stuff that I'm sure you've never heard preached before. Never more so than this morning. Uh, the passage that I'm going to be dealing with this morning is a number of commentators have said, I read it this week, trying to figure it out, the strangest passage in the Bible. It's the strangest set of verses in the entire Bible. It is weird. It, it's, what makes it even weirder is that it deals with circumcision. And circumcision has to do with the male anatomy. And... Uh, so I'm aware that there's some kids in the auditorium. And uh, uh, I need to tell you up front that this is, I'm, I'm going to be as discreet as possible. I'll use as many uh, alternative words. Uh, it, but when I say male organ, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, it'd be a lot easier if we didn't have to do that. And it'd be a lot funnier too. Uh, <laughs> but you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Organ power doesn't have the same feel as the alternative. So... So I, 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 but just know it's going to be, I, I'd rate this PG, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not even that, because I'm going to be, I, I was pretty good at keeping it down at the, using alternative words. Anyways, just so you know, it's going to be weird, weird passage, weird sermon, weird everything, but I think you'll get something out of it, so let's go for it. So here's uh, this, this passage, uh, the background of this passage is this. So Moses was uh, uh, in, in, in Egypt. He was a Jew, but he, he was raised with the Egyptians. And then he kills the guy because the guy was beating up a fellow Jew. And he has to run to the country of Midian. And there he finds the, uh, Jethro, who is the uh, head, uh, the chief priest of the Midianite religion. And um, he's got a hot daughter named Zipporah. And Moses ends up marrying Zipporah. And it looks like they're going to live happy ever after in the land of Midian until Moses stumbles onto this burning bush. And the burning bush says, I am that I am. And I want you to go down to Egypt and rescue my people out of, out of Egypt. And Moses says, I can't do that. And he says, yes, you can. And he shows them how to do all these tricks, these miracles and stuff to convince the people. And uh, 
and Moses argues with him, but finally Moses concedes, all right? He's going down the land of Egypt. That brings us to this passage. The first six verses are normal, and then they come to the weird stuff, but you need to hear the normal to set up the weird. Here it goes. So the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all of those who are seeking your life, who are seeking your life, are dead. He killed this guy, and so there's some Egyptians that wanted him dead, but that was 40 years ago at this point. And so the Lord's saying, hey, the coast is clear. It's safe. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses carried the staff of God in his hand. That's that staff that had this supernatural power to it. And uh, uh, Moses carried it around all the time. So the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put in your power. So this was up to Moses. And and he could use that rod in other ways if he wanted to. In fact, he did once. Um, and it still had that power, but the Lord is here saying, Do it, use it only for the purpose for which I'm telling you to use it. And then he says, I, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, that's kind of weird, don't you think? Um, God's going to, you go and tell him to let the people go, but I'm going to harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And then I'll punish him for not letting the people go. Does that make any moral sense to anybody? <laughs> okay, you have two alternatives here. One could argue that, that um, uh, this is reflecting this, an ancient Near Eastern worldview uh, where they didn't have the, the full awareness of God's true character that we have today after Christ. God has to accommodate people where they're at. We talk about that a lot around here. He reveals as much truth as people can handle, but since he's not a coercive God, he won't lobotomize anyone into believing the true things. Uh, there comes a point where he has to accept them as they are and work with them as they are. And, and so the p- p- folks at this time didn't have that clear idea of, of God's uh, true character. Um, in fact, uh, they, they sometimes confused him with the angel of death. That happens uh, in, in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 12. So we could argue that, that that's the, the, the ancient person's conception, that Yahweh, just for, to show off his power, hardened this guy and then, 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 then uh, judged him for being the guy that he hardened, hardened him to be. That's just the way they saw it back then. Um, Here's an alternative way of seeing it, though. In Hebrew, you can have the same word, but if it, 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 there's different forms of voices that you can have with it that, change, that nuance it in different ways. Four times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart before it says Yahweh hardened his heart. And when it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the, the connotation of that word is to resist. Okay, to resist, to push back. Whereas when God hardens his heart, the connotation is to strengthen. And so it could be, in fact, I suspect this is the case, that what the Lord is saying here is this. Okay, Moses, I want you to go and try, you, know, you do all the miracles I told you to get the children of Israel out of there. Pharaoh, I know his character, and he, he's hard. He's going to harden his heart against me. Um, and so you know what? I'm going to help him do that. If that's the game he wants to play, then I'll strengthen him. I'll, I, he'll, be, he'll be better at doing what he wants to do, even though what he wants to do is sinful and I wish he wouldn't do it. But if that's the game he wants to play, then, then I can use that. He, he brings good out of everything. Um, and, and, and so in, in this case, I think God just would help Pharaoh be, have enough courage to do what he really wanted to do and not, not cave for ulterior reasons. Okay? I, this is what I think Paul's getting at in Romans 9 when Paul says, you know, basically Yahweh says, hey, look at I'm the potter, you're the clay. Um, I'll fashion whatever is, is suitable given the kind of clay that you are. If you're going to be hard clay, well, then I'll fast, fashion you a vessel of wrath. That's only fit for destruction. If, I, I'll help you. You want to do that? 
Well, I, I, I can use that. I'll make an example out of you, put fear in the other nations or whatever. But if you'll be pliable, well, then I'll fashion a vessel of mercy. So the kind of God doesn't unilaterally decide who's going to be hard and who's not. He rather works with the kind of clay that, 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 that we bring to him, which is why it's very important to be pliable in God's hands. Okay, so that's what's up with that. Now, he goes on to say, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I said to you, let my son go, that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. So the Lord here is giving Moses a, a sneak preview of the 10th and culminating plague. The plague that finally broke the back of, of uh, the Egyptian machinery and got the people, uh, the children of Israel, out of, out of Egypt. Um, he says here that I will kill the firstborn. Israel's my firstborn. I'm going to rescue him out. But since you're going to refuse to let the people go, uh, your firstborn will end up dying. Um, but we learn from chapter 12, when this actually happens, that God isn't the one that killed the firstborn. That was the destroyer. And, and, and all of the households that had blood over the cover of it, the, the Lord prevented the destroyer from doing what the, the destroyer wanted to do. But on the ones that were not protected, the destroyer did what the destroyer wanted to do. And so you find... You find in, in, in this narrative that the author, he makes a distinction between the destroyer and Yahweh, and yet he, he sometimes credits Yahweh for what the destroyer does. And that's, that's an ancient Near Eastern thing. Uh, in ancient Near East, that's the culture in which the Bible's, uh, the Old Testament's written. And, and they would credit all violence to their God. They thought that was the way you compliment God. And so if there's violence, it's, it's insulting to God not to, not to attribute to it. So the, yes, the, the destroying angel does the killing, but it also could be said the Lord does the killing because we don't want to shortchange God on that. We want to you know, credit all of that to him. Okay, so they don't have a clear understanding of God's true character. That's where they're at, so that's where, where God accepts them. Okay, then we come to the funky stuff. Here's the funky one. So on the way, at the place where they spent the night, the Lord met him presumably Moses, and tried to kill him. hate when that happens. <laughs> but Zipporah, cute wife, Zipporah took out a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, presumably the Lord, let him alone. It was then, she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I tell you, it is one strange passage. Now, whenever you come to strange, funky stuff in the Bible, it, it's so important that you just stay honest and, and, and ask questions and just start, you know, be out loud with your questions. God is not at all threatened by our questions. And this passage certainly raises lots of questions. Okay, here's start, for starters, why is God trying to kill him? Um, he just called him into this ministry. We just got done with this conversation. He just had this long conversation about how you're going to go into Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh this and that and you're going to do these miracles and da 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 And now he's trying to kill him with nothing happening in between. What is wrong with this picture? And why would he be trying to kill him? It's clear Moses didn't have his son circumcised and that's a serious thing. But, but the punishment for not having your son circumcised wasn't death. You're excommunicated from the, from the community. So even given that Moses didn't circumcise his son, why would Yahweh be trying to kill him? Why didn't he give him a heads up? Like, they had this long conversation just a little bit ago. And why, why not kind of warn him about that? Yeah, Moses, you're going to go down to Egypt and all that kind of stuff. Um, but um, if you don't circumcise your son, I'm, I'm going to kill you. Give him a heads up. 
Especially, you know, it's really ironic because he, he, you saw it. He just said, hey, it's safe down there. All the people who are trying to kill you, uh, they're no longer trying, they're, they're dead. So it's safe. I might try to kill you, but, but, but no, no, they're not trying to kill you. It's, it's, just, it's just really, really weird. I don't know where the Lord shows up and tries to kill him. And if God wanted to kill him, don't you think he'd be dead? But it says the Lord tried to kill him. Look up the Hebrew word. It means tried. <laughs> the Lord tried to kill him. He, he sought to kill him. Um, and yet he didn't. And in fact, and this is one of the weirdest things, the Hebrew text, uh, it, it, it's clearer in Hebrew than it is in English, but you can get it in English as well. But it gives, it gives the impression, in fact, I think it's unmistakable, that the Lord was trying to kill Moses, but Zipporah prevented that from happening by circumcising the son and then taking the foreskin and touching it to Moses' feet and then saying, you are a blood bridegroom to me. That somehow prevents Yahweh from doing what Yahweh wanted to do, which was to kill Moses. And by the way, you should know this, it'll become important later on, that the word for touch, when it says he touched the foreskin of the feet, that word is usually translated smear. In fact, it's the same word, and this isn't coincidental, it's the same word that's used in Exodus 12 when it says they smeared blood on the doorposts. So she smeared blood on Moses' feet, but many scholars, in fact, I'd say the majority, argue that the feet here, as is very frequent in the Bible, and you find it all over the place in the ancient Near East, feet was a euphemism for the male organ. So it looks like she, sm she smeared the blood. I told you, it gets weirder and weirder. <laughs> Doesn't let up. Smeared the blood of her son's foreskin on Moses' organ. And then said the saying, and somehow that prevented the Lord from killing Moses. Are you appreciating the sheer weirdness of this? Do you have compassion on me, who has to preach a sermon on this? <laughs> See, I never would preach this sermon. In fact, Monday, as we were talking about this, I, like, I, I don't know if I because I, I, I had to do a lot of research on this. Uh, I'm really glad I did, but man, it was a challenge. It, it, the, the more you look at it, the weirder it gets. Okay. So we're going to, in the next half hour, explain all of that. You watch, you'll see. All those questions will be answered. So we have to start by going back to Genesis 15. Genesis 15, the Lord makes a covenant with, with, with Abraham. Calls him out of the land of Ur, you know, and, and says, I'm going to give you a son, even though your wife's too old to bear a son, uh, but I'm going to give you a son, and, and you're going to have descendants that will be as numerous as the stars. And then he enacts a covenant. Um, but it's a strange covenant. He, he gets these animals and cuts them in two, and it creates like a, a walkway. This is how you did covenants in those days. It, literally, the, to make a covenant means you cut a covenant, and there's shedding of blood. So there's blood. And, and, and usually, the two covenant partners will walk between these dead animals. And what they're saying is, if I break covenant with you, then let it be to me as it is with these animals. In other words, I'm laying my life on the line for this covenant. That, 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 that's what it is to make a blood covenant. You're in it for blood. Uh, to break this is to die. What's weird, though, is Moses, is, or Abraham has a vision of this. God gives him a vision of this. And the only one to walk through this covenant was Yahweh himself. And what he's saying is there is, I'm going to keep, I'm making a covenant with you, but I'm going to keep the covenant for you. This is this, a unilateral thing. I'm going to do both sides of this covenant. Which, of course, is totally fulfilled in Jesus Christ when we have God becoming a human being and living this perfect life. Uh, of, of faithfulness. But it's prophesied here. Okay, so that's what the Lord does. I'll, you'll know how we do this. 
Chapter 16 comes along. And Abraham and Sarah, remember, they came out of the land of Ur. For the first 40 years of their life, they're in the land of Ur. Ur is Paganville, right? And they still kind of think like pagans. In fact, as you read the accounts of Sarah and Abraham in the book of Genesis, you can see how God's constantly trying to teach them things against their paganism. He's always trying to get the, the, the paganism out of them. Well, because they're pagan, they assume, as any pagan would, that you have to help God or the gods along when they make promises. They'll do you favors, but only if you also do them favors. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a quid pro quo thing. That's what religion's always been. And so they're thinking, well, well, okay, God wants to give us a son. That's wonderful, but we have to do our part, and we kind of know how sons are made. Uh, but Sarah's too old. But check out Hagar, your handmaid. This is Sarah's idea now. That nice young handmaid. She still could bear children. Why don't you go in unto her, and then she'll, that, that's how God will give us a son, which was a really bad idea. And anyone could have predicted this. They should have got counseling beforehand. But they do it, and, and Hagar has this child, uh, Ishmael, but it's a, a great child, and God loves and cares for Ishmael, but Ishmael's not the promised son. And Sarah, shockingly, gets jealous because Hagar can have children and she can't. And, uh, and so she drives them out of the tribe and whatever. Okay, so you can read about that. It's beginning in Genesis 13, I think it is. Somewhere around there. No, no, 16. So, okay, then comes Genesis 17. Isn't that surprising how they, they all come in order? 16 comes after 15, 17 comes after 16. And in 17, God reiterates his promise. You're going to have a son, more numerous descendants than, than there are stars in the sky, all of that. But now he gives the sign of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision, which I find to be a perfectly bizarre sign. Signs usually are on things that are visible, aren't they? What's the point of a sign that, never mind, I didn't want to even go down that rabbit hole. Um, but now here's the thing a lot of ancient Near Eastern people, not all of them, but a lot of them already practiced circumcision. But in all those cases, it was done on boys as a rite of passage. Now that you're a man, here's what men do. And, then, and usually just before you get married. Um, it could be that the Israelites also were already practicing circumcision. Uh, a lot of times what God does is, he, because he's accommodating God, he takes things that are already going on, that they're not ready to get rid of, and he says, okay, I'll change the meaning of that. He does that with animal sacrifices, for example. Um, so it's possible there are already engaging in circumcision, but now he's going to give it a new meaning. And, and, and he humanizes the process by having it done on babies. Instead of it being 14-year-old boys who have to go through this without anesthesia. Can you imagine that? Like, ah, I, I, I get queasy just thinking about that. It's like, ooh. Okay, I, I guess I'm not a man's man. Uh, but yeah, by having on newborn babies, it's less traumatic. Although I read, found out this week, there's actually a group of guys out there who are claiming that they have post-traumatic stress disorder because they're circumcised as babies. And somehow part of their brain remembers a, a lady coming after their organ with a knife. And now they blame all their problems on that. <laughs> Finally, I get to be a victim. <laughs> Don't blame it on me. Blame it on that nurse. How would you like to have someone coming after you? You're never, never mind. There's so many, man, if I didn't have Adderall, this would be a disaster. I'm having to censor so much. Really, this is a train wreck waiting to happen. All the kids in the college, Daddy, why does he keep talking to my house? Okay, so God gives it, it's a sign of the covenant. Now, it's a, 
Why choose circumcision? It's a very good question. And the most plausible answer that the majority of scholars give is this. Coming right on the heels of, of Genesis 16, where uh, Abraham thought that you know, he has to do his part to help God along with his promise, this removal of the foreskin would have the connotation of God is, is, is communicating, I don't need your organ power to get the job done. Thank you very much. And the organ is, was seen as being sort of the, the center of a man's power anyways. Not much has changed, I guess. And, and so what the Lord is saying is, look it, I want you to stop relying on your own power, your own abilities, your own ingenuity, your own know-how, thinking that I need your help on something. Uh, I, I told you back in chapter 15, I'm, this, is, this is a Yahweh thing. I'm going to do it. And, and you'll know that it's me because you can't do it on your own. And so this is the way of saying, always remember, uh, actually the, the connotation is I could cut off that thing completely and still get the job done. Lucky for you, I'm not going to do that, but the foreskin is going to come off. Just to remind you that it could. So that's kind of the connotation. It also has a, the connotation of being consecrated to God because the, 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 uh, the concept is that you're, you're consecrating the organ to Yahweh and therefore you'll use it only in line with, God, with Yahweh's will. And the assumption, and I think it's a pretty good one, is that if you can be consecrated in your sexuality, well, the rest of your life's going to follow suit because for most people, this is the hardest area to be consecrated in. So it was God saying, be consecrated to me and, and, and be trusting me, not leaning on your own power. And the cutting itself had the symbolic significance of, of you're cutting off like the ways of the world. Uh, you're, you're, you're remove from yourself everything that would impede your relationship with me. So he, he makes this the sign of the covenant. And it was very important. Because the Lord said, if, if, if anyone is not circumcised, then since they're not cutting off the way of the world, well, then the community will cut them off. And so you, you were, you're cut off from, from the community. You weren't, weren't, weren't put to death, but, but it was a serious thing. God takes sign, Signing the covenant is part of the covenant. It's a very, very important thing. So the question then is this. Why didn't Moses have his son circumcised? Why, why was that? Now, there's a number of answers you could give. In fact, there's a number of ways you can interpret this passage, and I don't have time to go through them all, so I'm just giving you one that I think is most, most plausible. But we don't know what Moses knew. You know, growing up in Egypt, in an Egyptian family, he knew he was Jewish, and he knew the Jew, Jews had this as a sign of the covenant, but it's not clear how, if he knew how important it was or whatever. So that could factor into this, this, this equation. But based on the way Zipporah responds when Yahweh shows up, she immediately goes for circumcision. So she's thinking about circumcision, and she's a Midianite. Okay, she's not Jewish. So the only way she could know about circumcision was through Moses. So they've clearly talked about this. And the main interpretation of this, going back to ancient times, ancient Jews, Jewish, and Christian interpreters, they assume this, that, that uh, the reason why Moses didn't circumcise his son was because Zipporah objected to it. Being the daughter of a high priest, they don't practice circumcision. She's wondering, why would you have my precious baby go through this painful ordeal and come out with a funny-looking organ as a result of it. I will have nothing to do with this. And so she puts her foot down. Now, hopefully Moses pushed back a little bit. He wasn't totally wussy about it, like, okay, honey, I'm sorry, I won't bring it up again. No, Moses is going to go, no, Zipporah, look at, uh, this could invite trouble in on our family if you don't do this. You know, they, they're, they're, God takes this very seriously. And... Um, Remember, Moses has a, a, he, an ancient Near Eastern view of God. Uh, God can be very capricious. God can be dangerous. In fact, in the next chapter, in Ephesians 5, first time Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh, Moses says, 
you've got to let us go out into the desert and worship our God for three days. Otherwise, Yahweh will kill us. Which is, first of all, Yahweh never said that, but it shows you something about Moses' conception of God. I mean, what kind of deity says, Moses and Aaron, you go and talk to Pharaoh, and I tell you what, if you don't convince him, uh, I'm going to kill you. In fact, I'm going to kill you and all the Israelites. <laughs> that just shows you something of Moses' conception of God. Okay, that there's a, that, that's how any ancient Eastern person would think, because the, the deities can be very, very arbitrary and, and capricious. So I can see him going to Zipporah saying, Zipporah, this Yahweh is not someone you want to mess with. He can get nasty here. So please, let's circumcise our son. And she's like, no, that's just, all the girls will laugh at me. And, and, and he's going to have walk around. His wife will laugh at him when, when he gets married because his unit looks funny. And it's painful. So no. However it happened, obviously Moses acquiesced. So now they're traveling into the desert. And this could be, it seems like it was on her mind. One other thing you need to understand, and then you'll understand why she freaked out. And this coin will drop in the slot. Um, throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, I don't know of any exception to this, everyone assumed that the wilderness, the desert, was infested with demons. That's where demons live, at least where the worst demons live. They all were familiar, of, you know, the desert area is, can be very dangerous. People go out there and just disappear. They never come back. Where'd they go? Well, they assumed demons ate them. And, and, and we have all these stories that we've uncovered throughout the ancient Near Eastern world where there's stories about people encountering desert demons or desert monsters. And these desert monsters would, would sometimes devour the people uh, or cast spells on them or do nightmares things. And it was scary stuff. So these stories are all circulating there. It's that no man's land between countries. Like you, to, to get to Egypt from Midian, you've got to travel through a lot of wilderness. And, and, and that's no man's land. And uh, you don't want to do that unless you absolutely have to. So, so they see this as a demon-infested demon place. In some of these stories, in fact, a lot of them actually, people weren't, they, they confront the demon or the monster, and they would have certain rituals or certain uh, um, uh, objects or certain incantations that they could use to ward off the demons. This is just typical ancient thinking here. Magic. Um, they... they, they, they they had this, uh, uh, the object had this apotrophatic quality. Apotrophatic. Everyone say apotrophatic. apotrophatic. Probably, you just learned a new word for a lot of you. It means having the quality, uh, an ability, a power to ward off demons or ward off evil. That's an apotropatic uh, ritual or whatever. Well, they had a whole system of this. And it's not clear what, how this impacts the passage, but it's significant, surely, that some of these apotropatic rituals involve smearing blood. Even smearing blood in strategic areas, such as the organ. Um, and there were, there was some groups that held that circumcision itself and the smearing of blood from circumcision was itself an apotrophatic ritual. In other words, you, it, it, it protected you from demonic powers. We even have some pictures uh, that we've uncovered where there's desert demons trying to swallow a person, but it can't get any further than the organ. Because the organ's been circumcised, and you can't swallow a circumcised organ, and so the demon has to spit them out. Now, so put all that in the mix. And one more thing, and that is that they, they, they stop at this, uh, the, the place where they spent the night, is how it's, it's translated in the NRSV. Um, some translations have they stopped at the inn, which is really ridiculous, because they didn't have inns in 1500 BC in the desert. 
They still don't have inns out there. Uh, these, this resting place was just a place where people who had to be out in the desert risking their lives against demons. This is a place where they'd stop because maybe there's a river there. You could water your horse or there's some tree covering or there's a little indentation inside of a mountain so protection from the rain or whatever. But it's a natural place. It's just a logical place to stay. But because the wilderness is inhabited by demons who devour people, guess where the demons hang out? Right, in those resting places. So the resting places were often viewed as being haunted. So now let's put all this together, right? Um, they're traveling down to Egypt. They're going through the demon-infested place. They've all heard stories of monsters, whatever. They've got a view of Yahweh, that Yahweh you know, could very well be one of these desert demons. He's, he's synonymous with the angel of death, for crying out loud, so that's not impossible. And, and Zippor is thinking about uh, this, this uh, decision not to circumcise their son. Um, it's on her mind, clearly, and, and, and she's wondering, I, you know, have I just declared war on Yahweh? Is Yahweh going to... You know, punished us for this. It was Moses, right? Maybe we should have circumcised him. So they come to this resting place, which is haunted, and they're on their guard, vigilant about like the desert demons and whatever. She's got baptism or a circumcision on her mind, and all of a sudden Yahweh shows up. And did you notice when Yahweh shows up, what does he say? Nothing. What does he do? Nothing. He just shows up. And Zipporah freaks out. Because sometimes showing up, just showing up at the right place, at the right time, is enough to scare the kajibers out of somebody and send a real clear lesson if that's what you want to do. All right? I think this is what's happening here. It's a little bit like this. When my daughters were uh, in 10th and 11th grade, they were running cross country, and they invited the whole team over to have a sleepover, slumber party, fun time. And that night around 2 in the morning, I woke up, and uh, as I often do, and I hear them downstairs, they're still watching, they're watching a movie in our living room. And it's clearly a scary movie. You can tell by the music. You know, that kind of eerie music. And you can tell by the way, they're, they're, they're whispering to each other. They sound scared. You know, you can tell. Now, what you need to know is that I'm evil. I, I, I'm, I, I am totally evil. Um, I love to scare people. I, I, it's, I, ask anyone who lives with me, and there's a few who live with us now, and I just love to scare them. I scare some of our parishioners sometimes. I scare people at the office. So several people are a few years, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, a few years older because I scare you. And some people are just fun to scare because they scream so loud. I love, love that. Like you. <laughs> ah! I just, I just think it's so funny. I've never outgrown that. What's wrong with me? I watch, I watch funny some videos, and when it comes to people being, that, that's my favorite part, is when people are terrified. I just think it's hilarious. And I like getting scared. It's, 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 a, it's weirdness. So I get an idea. Uh, I, I, I had actually just bought, because Halloween was coming up, I bought this rubber mask, that real life-looking mask. It was just it was this old guy. It wasn't like a monster or demon, or, but it, you know, eyes were a little bit out of place and it looked kind of scary. But very realistic. So I put this on and I, I sneaked downstairs. It took me forever because I, I didn't want to make one creak. I got there just as the movie's coming to an end. This is so perfect. And the music's going on, the, the credits are rolling, and they're, they're, the girls are talking to each other. And they're almost crying because they're just so like, I, I can't believe it. They're so and all I did was I took this, I put this mask on, and I just went like this. And I, I, and I just stayed there. Waiting for someone to notice. And my shirt's getting wet from the tears coming down my face because I'm laughing so hard. I mean, this face looks, inside, I'm like, just trying not to, I, was, I, I knew how good this was going to be. I, and so I was laughing, laughing. 
Finally, my daughter, Danae, gets up. They were all sitting on the floor watching, and she was going to get some water or whatever. And then she sees the face, and she just freezes. Like, total frozen for maybe two or three seconds. And then she lets out this blood-curling scream and jumps back full eagle. It was like, like, like this. It was too, like, kill me now, get it over with. It, then the girl's pandemonium hit. It was, it was just absolute chaos. And I just remember so clearly that this one, this one gal on the team, she was uh, like six foot one, six foot two, and she was the best runner on the team. Uh, but I, I knew she was a real scaredy cat. I, 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 she was on the floor, and when she looked up and saw this face, um, she defied the laws of physics. I, I, don't, I don't know how she did it, but instantly she was in the air. And then midair, I, I remember like it was yesterday, she did a tummy tuck like, like this. <laughs> And it landed on the couch in a fetal position, crying and begging for her life. I, like, please don't, please don't, please don't. And I, was, I could not breathe. I had to take the mask off because I couldn't breathe. It was, it, was, it was the best scare I've ever had in my life. I told you I'm evil. I, and that, she's probably still in therapy for that. I don't know. But see, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I just looked ugly, which I happen to be good at. And, and, and in that context, it just, so here, Yahweh shows up, and, and he always, he meets people where they're at, and will, whatever their beliefs are, he'll use that to his own advantage. These guys are paranoid about the demons in the desert, and, and these, these, you know, have, have all, they have this fallen view of me that I'm capable of being like a desert demon, whatever. Well, you know what? Moses does need to learn how important it is, that blood, that blood covenant and that circumcision, he needs to get that seared in. Uh, and, and, and if he's going to lead the children of Israel out of that, he's going to have to learn this. And so I'll just show up and uh, let the circumstance take care of itself. And so he shows up. Now, maybe he, I don't know, maybe he was going to say, hey, let's have a little chat about um, uh, circumcision and, and the blood. Uh, Moses, you clearly don't get it yet, so let me tell you. Maybe that's what he tended to do, but he shows up and Zipporah freaks out and lesson learned. And so he walks away, he disappears. Maybe he's giggling. Uh, I, I don't know. But see, Zipporah goes into action. She knows from Moses that, about the importance of circumcision, but she knows from her high priest's father all of the apotropaic rituals that you can do to ward off a desert demon. And, and the two kind of fuse in this. So she circumcises her son and then rubs it on Moses' organ. And scholars aren't sure exactly what that means either here or in other contexts where that's done. But it looks like it's some kind of a surrogate circumcision or something, I don't know. But it's, it's clearly apotropaic. It's warding off this demon. And then she says this statement, surely you are a bridegroom, uh, uh, bloody bridegroom to me. And scholars disagree about what exactly that means, but it has the quality of an incantation, a formula. Like she's saying something that has an apotropaic quality to it. And the meaning of it is something like this. Now you are alive. You, now you are a living bridegroom to me because of the blood of circumcision. You know, the blood has saved you. And it's a declaration like, like you plead the blood of Jesus or something. I plead the blood of circumcision. In other words, because of this, that, that desert demon can't, can't attack you. And so this whole perspective is, is, is told, uh, this whole passage is told from the perspective of, of, of uh, Moses and Zipporah, who when he shows up, they assume he's here to kill. He's here to kill. Why else would a desert demon show up? And... Um, but this apotropaic ritual thing wards off the demon. And so Yahweh, I think, is like, okay, if you want to believe that your magic made me go away, eh, I'll give that to you. Like, ooh, wow, such powerful magic. I better get out of here. 
Uh, I wanted to kill Moses, but now I can't because that magic is so powerful. Yeah, you go, Zipporah, you go, you got it down. I, I think he's chuckling the whole way. But uh, that's, and then, then and, and part of what he's trying to uh, drive home here is he's setting Moses up, preparing him, teaching him about these plagues that are going to happen, and they're going to culminate with the 10th plague. And so here's the thing. Israel is, God, that's why Yahweh, the last thing he said to him before they went to this ordeal was, uh, tell him about the firstborn deal. Israel's my firstborn, but their firstborn's going to die. So uh, uh, he's setting this up so that Moses will see this. That the way that the children of Israel are going to get out of Egypt is by being protected by the smeared blood. Same word used. In fact, that's the only time it's used in Exodus is, is when it has to do with blood. So the smeared blood is going to be very, very important. And the ones who are allowed to smear the blood over the doorpost are the Jews who have the sign of circumcision. Anyone who didn't have that sign wasn't allowed to do that. And so it's through circumcision. That's how they're protected from the angel of death, the destroyer. And that's how they're able to get out of Israel. Whereas the, the, the Egyptians... Uh, they're not covered by the blood, and they're not part of the blood covenant. They don't have the sign of circumcision, so they're vulnerable to uh, the, the, the angel of death. And he's able to do what, what, what they want to do. Since Moses and Zipporah are seeing him as sort of the angel of death, he's playing that role. He says, okay, I'll use that. So you'll need the blood and circumcision to protect against me playing this role of the, the angel of death. Remember that when you get down into Egypt and you're coming upon that final plague. That is what is going on in this strange, strange passage, in my humble opinion. If you find a better explanation, by all means, share it with me. I'd like to hear it. But here's the thing. Last thing I want to say about this. Um, when I say last thing, I, of course, I'm lying, because uh, that's just a filler for me to say the rest of what I want to say. But it is kind of the last thing, since we're coming down to that. And I can tell that my medication is wearing off. A disaster is about to happen. I should quit while I'm ahead. But here's the thing. It's, it's, what's really interesting is when you read the Bible, to, to understand that God, if you understand that God is a God who accommodates, he doesn't bulldoze over people, doesn't lobotomize people, doesn't force people into believing the truth. He, he influences them as much as possible and then accepts them as much as necessary. When you read the Bible that way, you, it, 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 it's a story of, God, of God's people slowly getting it. And it's really interesting to see how themes that begin over here, at a real infantile stage, they take on a higher quality as you go throughout the Bible, and always they're culminated in Jesus Christ. Jesus fills out the meaning of all these things, and I can give you a lot of different examples of this, but God always starts very, you know, they're at this stage, and it's very concrete, it's very simple, get it down, and then, then it, it, the meaning of it changes over time. And we see this with circumcision, and we see this with this concept of blood, the blood covenant. I'll give you one example. Uh, read uh, Colossians chapter 2. Uh, I love this passage. Hey, if you'll give me a half-hour extension, I, I can really preach on this thing. I guess. Okay, maybe that's a little much. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision. And what you're always finding going on throughout this, this, the, the Bible trajectory is things that started really earthly get, get, get spiritualized. In fact, you, you can even see this in the Old Testament. They start talking about a circumcision of the heart. And they start to realize, what good is the circumcision of the organ if you don't have a circumcised heart? See, they're evolving on this. So it's a spiritual circumcision, not done with hands, and it puts off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Think about that. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him uh, uh, through faith in the power of God, who raised him up from the dead, praise God. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, okay, you were cut off from God. 
Either you're cut off and you're circumcised for God or you're cut off from God. And so you were cut off from God, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with his legal demands. He set that aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, everything that was against us was nailed to the cross. And in doing that, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that's the principalities and powers, Satan and the rest, the desert demons, and he made a public example or a laughingstock of them, triumphing over them in it, in the cross, in the blood. Okay, here's the deal. It started with circumcision of the flesh, a sign to say, hey, don't be trusting your organ power, be trusting Yahweh power, all right? But now it's evolved to this new thing. It's a, it's a different kind of cutting off. And our cutting off is when we are in Christ, when you surrender your life to Christ. Uh, a circumcision takes place. It's a spiritual circumcision. But it's not just your foreskin, men, that get cut off. It's all of your old self. It, 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 you put off this old flesh. And, and by saying that, you're cut off from, from the old way you used to rely on your own power. You get cut off. When you're in Christ, you get cut off from uh, being Lord of your own life and calling your own shots. You get cut off from being that rebellious self that wants to do things your way and not God's way. You get cut off from the ways of Egypt. We still have an Egypt we got to get out of. It's still ruled by a cosmic pharaoh, and, and it's oppressive. And we were, the Bible says we were slaves. We were dead in our trespasses in that thing. But in Christ, we're circumcised. We get out through the circumcision. Because we let go of Egypt, we let go of the old self, we let go of the old habits, let go of the old patterns, let go of the old identities, and we grab hold of a new identity in Christ Jesus, praise God. All that's old is cut off. The world is cut off. Let it be done to you. Amen. It's a total circumcision. And we're still called to be trusting in God solely now. Uh, the meaning of the f first circumcision, that, that part stays the same. Don't be trusting your own power, trust Yahweh. But now it's so much deeper, and it's a spiritual thing. And then there's the blood. The blood, uh, it, originally, it's, it's seen as being apotropaic. Uh, it, it wards off d demonic things. Uh, it's, it's the blood of the covenant. It's, it's about the, the, the uh, awesomeness of the covenant. And then it gets to be about atonement uh, as, as they offer animal sacrifices for the shortcomings in the covenant. But as it goes on, oh, it grows and it culminates in, in Christ Jesus. And, and so we, this passage doesn't mention explicitly the blood of Jesus, but it's all presupposed. Because what the cross is all about, the blood of Jesus, right? The new covenant is all about the blood of Jesus. This cup is my, uh, the cup of the new and everlasting covenant, for it's my blood which is to be shed for you. Uh, but it's not talking about just about the physical blood of Jesus. When we sang about it earlier, you know, that we're cleansed by the blood, we're washed in the blood. The church I was saved and we used to have all these blood songs. There's a river of blood. It, was, it actually sounded pretty gory. But it's not, if you understand what it's talking about, because in the New Testament, to talk about the blood of Jesus is shorthand for saying the self-sacrificial love of God that's revealed by the shed blood of Jesus. It's not that there's anything magical about his blood. That's how it started. But there's nothing magical about the blood. What's magical, if you want to call it magical, is the love of God that leads Jesus to shed that blood. And it's that shed blood that does everything. When you read in the New Testament, it, we're, we're, through his blood, we, are, we have forgiveness of sins. Through the blood of Jesus, we, we, we are redeemed. Through the blood of Jesus, we're set free. Through the blood of Jesus, we're protected from the enemy. Through the blood of Jesus, yeah, we're, we're consecrated. Through the blood of Jesus, we're sanctified. It's all about the self-sacrificial love of God. God's love does that. God's love erases all of the sin. Cast it as far as the east of the north. God's love crucified everything the enemy had on us, on Calvary. Nailed it to the cross. And in doing that, see, he not only delivered us out of Egypt, he destroyed the whole Egyptian economy, if you will. The kingdom of darkness, it runs on rules and laws and ifs and buts and gotta do's and condemnation and accusations. It's, it's, it's a legal landmine, which is why if you get caught up in that, 
You're getting close to despair because the accuser will eat you alive. Ought to do, got to do. You're never good enough. It's going to just eat you alive. That's, that's Egypt and you're a slave if you're in Egypt. But praise God, the love of God, the blood of Jesus has set us free. He didn't just pay off a debt. He blew up the economy. Those terms have no meaning anymore. God's not holding anyone's sin against them. We're now in a new economy, the economy of the kingdom of God. And that economy runs not on laws and, and ought to do's and gotta do's and buts and whatever. It runs on the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, flowing into our life, the blessings of God. We're transformed from the inside out. Circumcised in our heart, transformed from the inside out. Not because there's external constraint on us, not because we're afraid of a desert demon, uh, because we're in love with the all good, loving God who's revealed on Calvary. Praise God. God starts where you're at. He does this with our own lives too and grows us to where he wants us to be. And ultimately, all the, all the funky stuff in the Old Testament, it all's fulfilled in Jesus. He is our circumcision. He is our blood covenant. He is our life. He is our all in all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. All right, we just stand, and I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you are here this morning and could use any prayer for any reason, um, maybe it's to get some of the visual things out of your head that I just gave you. <laughs> uh, come up here and pray with these folks. Uh, they'd love to pray with you. And if you're here this morning and are not a devoted follower of Jesus, I encourage you to become one. Uh, think about that, and if you want to find out more about that, come and talk to these folks. Okay, folks, as we leave here, leave here can we do it with answering this question? Are we willing... To go back to that first circumcision, are we willing to put all of our confidence in Jesus Christ and none in ourselves? Uh, are we willing to, to really have, um, not be relying on our own power? And this now, since we're in the New Testament, it applies to women as much as men. We're all to be circumcised in Christ. And that means, is our confidence in Jesus? Or is it in what we can do, what we think we can do for Jesus? Uh, is our sense of life, our wellness uh, anchored in Jesus? Is our hope anchored in Jesus? Uh, is, is our joy anchored in Jesus? Or do we have that tendency to still rely on ourselves to produce that kind of stuff? Uh, if, that is, if that is a temptation for you, and it is for most of us, I want to remind you of your circumcision in Christ. Will you, are you willing to cut that off? Will you cut that off to be wholly devoted and wholly leaning on Jesus Christ? And if that is your heart's desire, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.